You are listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. Resonate is a collegiate church planning network in the Northwest. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at resonate.net. Hey, well, I need you to help me in some audience participation. Uh, how many of you in this room have ever run for any kind of office, whether it be like president, vice president, secretary, treasurer, FFA, hall council, like student council, whatever? Anybody run? Okay, how many of you actually won your election? Okay, a lot less hands. Uh, how many of you are still bitter about this? Losing, yeah, just me? I have some guys I went to high school with that I still don't talk to because of what happened in student council elections. So a little known fact about my wife, Amy and I, is that we were both presidents of our eighth grade class. Like we were both the eighth grade class president of our junior highs and her campaign platform was about after school programs uh, and connecting more people to, uh, to tutors. And my, my platform was uh, more ice cream flavors in the cafeteria and ping pong tables in the gym. And uh, if you know anything about my wife and I, you know that makes a ton of sense for us. Uh, she is an academic and I uh, not so much. So, uh, but that's what we were going for in the eighth grade. Now, if you've ever run for anything, you, you know that the principle's true. Like no matter what you're running for, uh, no matter how many speeches you gave, here, here's what you're trying to do when you're running for election. You're trying to get your followers to get a vision, this is important, of what it would be like if you were in charge. That's, that's what all you're trying to do. You're giving speeches. You're saying, more ice cream flavors in the cafeteria. If I'm in charge, that's what it'll be like. Ice cream for all, right? And so you're, you're trying to give a vision of what it would look like if you were in charge. And so uh, if, you, if you haven't been around Resonate in a while, we've been looking at the book of Luke, walking through what Jesus is doing to not only tell the story of history, but also tell the story of how you and I can, can run into his story uh, and find the fulfillment we're actually looking for. And it's been pretty fun. Like every week we open the Bible, we're like, what is Jesus going to do to us this week, right? And so it's, it's been pretty fun. But what you're seeing uh, about to happen is Jesus is about to tell the world what it's like if he's in charge. And that's what Luke is laying out. This is what it would be like if Jesus was in charge because he's got a following and he's got some power in his words and some healing in his hands and people are starting to follow him. He has to like go to the mountains and hide because it's so dangerous because so many people are following him. The Romans are worried about him. The Jewish people are excited because he might be their, their long awaited king. But at the end of the day, Jesus is going to say, hey, here's what it looks like if I'm in charge. Here's what I value. Here is what I put into place. So if you have a Bible, would you grab it and turn to Luke chapter six? And this is what we're going to uh, be reading from is, is what's called uh, the, the giving of the kingdom ethic. Uh, some commentators call this the ordination sermon for the disciples. This is kind of the first, here's who we are, now go do it kind of sermon. And this is where you get uh, in Matthew chapter five, this is called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, in Luke chapter six, it's called the Sermon on the Plain. And so these are, uh, most people think these are the same sermons. Matthew chapter five is 101 verses. Luke chapter 6 is only 29 
verses. So I want to read to you all 29 verses uh, of Jesus' sermon in Luke chapter 6. Uh, I have a friend in Wyoming that's a pastor, and he memorized the Sermon on the Mount. 101 verses. Memorized it. And then one Sunday, got up in front of his church and just like spoke the Sermon on the Mount from memory. And after service, there were some people in his church who was like, bro, that was the greatest sermon you have ever preached in the history of our church. How did you get so wise from last week to this week? Like, it is amazing turnaround in your preaching game. And he's like, guys, I just recited the Bible to you for 35 minutes. They were like, we knew it. You're not that good. We knew it. So lower your expectations. I will not be reciting from memory these 29 verses, uh, but I would like to read them to you because what Jesus is about to do is give you not just the rules of the kingdom, but more than that, the attitude of the kingdom, the internal workings of the kingdom, the value set that he proclaims as if I'm in charge, this is what it looks like. It looks like a completely different thing than what you might expect. So in Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 20, it says this, Jesus turned to his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor. Now, real quick, Jesus comes in hot. Like, I like try to preach sermons to you and come in with a joke. Jesus is like, blessed are the poor. You're like, whoa, Jesus, we just got here and you just started. He's coming in hot. You ready? Prepare yourself. It doesn't get any less hot. Okay, here we go. Uh, God blesses you who are poor for the kingdom of God is yours. God blesses you who are hungry now for you will be satisfied. God blesses you who weep now, for in due time you will laugh. And what blessing awaits you when people hate you and exclude you and mock you and curse you as evil because you follow the Son of Man? That crazy verse. When that happens, Jesus says, be happy. Yes, leap for joy, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, their ancestors treated the ancient prophets that same way. But what sorrow awaits you who are rich, for you have your only happiness now. What sorrow awaits you who are fat and prosperous now, for a time of awful hunger awaits you. What sorrow awaits you who laugh now, for your laughing will turn to mourning and sorrow. What sorrow awaits you who are praised by the crowds, for their ancestors also praised the false prophets. But to you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, offer the other cheek also. If someone demands your coat, offer your shirt also. Give to anyone who asks. And when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. But do to others as you would like them to do to you. If you love only those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to only those who do good to you, why should you get credit for even sinners do that much? And if you lend money only to those who can repay you, why should you get credit? For even sinners will lend to the sinners if they get a full return. But love your enemies and do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great and you will truly be acting as children of the Most High. For he is kind to those who are thankful or who are unthankful and wicked, and you must be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. Do not judge others and you will not be judged. Do not condemn others uh, or it will all come back against you. Forgive others and you will be forgiven. Give and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full, pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over and poured into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. Then Jesus gave the following illustration. Can one blind person lead another? Won't they both fall into a ditch? Students are not greater than their teacher, but the the student who is fully trained will become like the teacher. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own eye? 
How can you uh, think of saying, friend, let me help you get rid of the speck in your own eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First get rid of the log in your eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. A good tree could not produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. A tree is identified by its fruit. Figs are never gathered from thorn bushes, and grapes are not picked from bramble bushes. A good person produces good things from a treasury of a good heart, and an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what's in your heart. So why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? I will show you what it's like when someone comes to me, listens to my teaching, and then follows it. It's like a person building a house who digs deep and lays the foundation on a solid rock. When the floodwaters rise and break against that house, it stands firm because it is well built. But anyone who hears and doesn't obey is like a person who builds a house right on the ground without a foundation. When the floods sweep down against that house, it will collapse into a heap of ruins. And the next verse says, and saying all that, Jesus left to Capernaum. And that's like Jesus going, yeah, that's about all I got, and I'm done. And he leaves. So this is the sermon that we get of Jesus saying, this is what it looks like if I am in charge. And there's a lot of stuff in there that has a lot to do with the context of being under Roman oppression. So in Roman oppression, if they slapped you, it was illegal to fight back. So Jesus says, if they slap you, then turn and let them slap you again. They could take your coat, and you could say, uh, instead of fighting for that coat, just give them another coat. So there's a lot of stuff Jesus is saying that has a lot to do with the Roman context that the Jewish people found themselves in. But what we're primarily going to talk about today is not all the details of this, but more so the spirit and the attitude Jesus is trying to get us to understand when he teaches this way. And it all starts with that last little piece that Jesus talks about. And here's what he says. If if you were to say Jesus' campaign slogan or what he is starting his whole ministry on, the the if I'm in charge, this is what it looks like. It, It would look like this. Jesus would say, Uh, My campaign slogan is, if you love me, you obey me. If you love me, you obey me. Maybe the second place slogan of his campaign would be, make obedience great again. (laughs) No? Too soon for that joke? Okay, cool. Did you guys get the joke? Yeah? It's just not a good joke. Okay, I got it. Scratched. (laughs) Not a good time, right? I get it. But what's going on in this passage isn't Jesus making these great claims about how great your life's going to be if he's in charge. Jesus makes these great claims and say, if I'm in charge, I can give you what you most need, but you have to obey me in order to get it. So right at the end of that passage, you get this phrase, and this is, this is where we're going to start and kind of reverse engineer this sermon. But Jesus says this, that coming to Jesus, this is so important, listening to his teaching and following it, Come to Jesus, listen to his teaching, and follow it provides a firm foundation for you to build your life on. One more time. Coming to Jesus, listening to his teaching, and then obeying it, then following it, provides for you a firm foundation to build your life upon. That insinuates that anything besides that, which is come to Jesus, listen to him, and follow him, would be an unfirm foundation that is not worth building your life on. Jesus says, if you want to sustain the storms that are coming, and isn't it great Jesus doesn't say, you follow me, your life will be healthy, wealthy, and great, and all you'll have friends, and you'll lose weight and look great. No, he doesn't say any of that. He's like, storms are coming, actually a flood, with waves and wind, and because it's coming, 
You need to drill down into the ground of the word of God and the person of Christ and build a foundation here. Otherwise, you don't stand a chance for what is coming. But listen, this is, this is an important thing for us to recognize, that coming to Jesus, listening to him, and obeying him is the place where your foundation starts. Because this is a significant thing, and, and I want to say this as clearly as possible. As one of your pastors, it is our uh, overwhelming obligation to make clear to you what we think the Bible expects of us as Christians. So if you were to say, what kind of Christian is Resonate Church promoting? We'd say, well, the kind of Christian we're promoting is the kind of Christian Jesus promotes. And we would say the kind of Christian Jesus promotes, you ready, is this. Obedience-based Christianity is the thing Jesus promotes. Obedience-based Christianity. I'll take it a step further. Jesus promotes obedience-based discipleship. Obedience-based discipleship. So in John 14, 23, Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will obey me. Your love language might be quality time. Your love language might be physical touch or words of affirmation or gifts. Jesus' love language, obedience. Like, man, don't be hugging me. Obey me. I'm not into words of affirmation and physical touch. I'm into obedience. If you love me, you obey me. Matthew chapter 28, verse 20 Teach these disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. This is the great commission. When Jesus sends out the the 12 or the 11 and says, you go into all nations sharing the gospel, teaching them to what? Obey. Obey all that I've commanded you. So as clearly as I can say this, listen, look right at me. Jesus wants you to obey his teachings, not just know his teachings. Jesus wants you to obey his teachings, not just know his teachings. Teaching. So when Jesus thinks about discipleship, he thinks in terms of not of people who give verbal agreement to what he says, but people who give actionable lives in response to what he says. Things that are moving forward in your life, showing that you believe him. Now, this is pretty subtle. This is honestly pretty subtle. And I don't know if you catch this oftentimes in Christianity, but I became a Christian when I was like 13. And from age 13 to 23, I did not get obedience based Christianity. Because I would go to church, I would go to Sunday school, I would read the Bible, I would read books, I would listen to sermons, I would do all of that stuff, and the majority of Christian people around me, here's the question they would ask, um, hey Josh, what did you learn in church today? Hey Josh, what did you learn in Sunday school? Josh, what did you learn when you read the Bible today? What did you learn in that conference you went to? What did you learn in that book you're reading? What did you learn? What did you learn? What did you learn? What did you learn? As if learning was the end game. Never once did someone come to me and go, hey, you went to church this morning? What did you obey at church this morning? What did you obey when you read the Bible today? What did you obey in that book you're reading? What did you obey in that sermon? What did you obey at that conference? What did you obey from the word of God? But oftentimes we treat learning as if it's the end goal and we start to believe that learning is what God wants from us when really what he wants from us is obedience. And we radically misunderstand that. I know I talk about my kids all the time, but I have like a four-year-old and a two-year-old. Like my daughter's about to turn four, my other daughter's about to turn two, and they are crazy. And it is very difficult to wrangle them most every day, all the time. But we have on our deck a trampoline that's pretty small, and it has like these netting along the side of it. And you can put both kids in there and lock them in with a zipper, and they can't get out. So it's like a little prison. And you can get a solid 20 to 30 minutes of babysitting if you do it just right. If they've had food and water, and you put them in there at the right time, 
and you go in the kitchen and look out, you, you, can, you can get some work done in your life. And so uh, this, like recently, we put them in there. It's, it's fun, right? And so they're playing together. And my daughter Harper is the older one. And she is like hurting Lucy. And she's loving it. Like she's jumping and crashing into her and throwing her everywhere. And at first it's laughing. But I like open the window and I'm like yelling, Harper, stop hitting your sister. Harper, stop slamming your sister's head on the ground. Harper, stop pile driving your sister. Harper, stop suplexing your sister. Harper, stop choking your sister, right? And like stop, 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 stop. And she's not stopping. And finally, I'm like, listen and obey, Harper. Listen and obey. Stop doing that. Listen and obey. If you don't obey, the wrath of your father is going to come down upon you. Stop. Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be funny if, if my four-year-old daughter looked back and said, hey, Dad, I heard you, um, and I'm really learning a lot right now about hitting. Um, I tell you what, Dad, uh, I'm going to take some time and pray about what you just told me not to do, and then I'm gonna see if through prayer, maybe you will tell me not to do that thing, and then maybe I'll do it. Or hey dad, you know what? I just bought a book called Quit Hitting Your Sister. And when I finish this book, then maybe I'll consider and pray, and maybe I'll stop hitting my sister. I'm learning a lot about it. Thanks for asking. It's been great learning. She knows not to hit her sister. She knows. She just doesn't obey. Why is she not obeying? Well, one, she's a terrible little sinner. (laughs) And so are you. And so am I. Sinful at birth. Cute sinner. So she's not obeying because she's a sinner. And the second reason is because she's immature. She's immature and she's not... She's not operating in maturity, and she's, she's operating with what she knows. And frankly, she likes hitting her sister. She thinks it's awesome. And so she's not listening because she likes it. And, and, and a temptation in the church, this is a real temptation in the church, is to assess how mature a believer is based on how much they know. A temptation in the church is for you to look around this room and go, who knows the most? And based on who knows the most, you then think they are the most mature person in the room. The temptation is to think knowledge equals maturity. But the New Testament comes along and Jesus comes along and goes, I gauge maturity by obedience, not knowledge. I gauge maturity by obedience, not knowledge. So my daughter and I had a little powwow after this big event of wrestling and the trampling. And I'm talking to her, I'm like, babe, why aren't you listening and obeying? Come on, like your sister didn't like it. Like, do you hear her screaming? And she, she looks at me, she's like, sometimes it's hard to listen and obey, dad. I'm gonna ask God to help me. And I was like, that's actually the best prayer ever <laughs> to go to God and go, it is hard to listen and obey. Will you help me? It is super hard to listen and obey because oftentimes there is a cost to the obedience. There's a cost oftentimes associated with the obedience God is asking you to walk in. And oftentimes you only see that cost of obedience. And, and this, is, this is so hard. I really hope you get this. I think this is so brilliant. And I didn't come up with this, by the way. But this is amazing. Like, you need to write this down. You ready? I have already upsold it way too much, but this is good. Often we think of the cost of obedience, and we think that's too hard. Rarely do we think about the cost of disobedience. So you, you, you and I think that's going to cost too much if I obey, but I submit to you it's going to cost too much if you don't obey. 
Because it's going to lead you into a life that you don't want. It's going to lead you into a path you don't want. The cost of obedience is always better than the cost of disobedience. The suffering that goes with obedience is always better than the suffering that goes with disobedience. The pain and the hurt of obedience is always better than the the pain and the hurt of disobedience. Saying goodbye to your friends so they can go plant a church is painful, but that's the pain of obedience. Leaving them to to not go, or sorry, keeping them here uh, is much more painful, the the pain of disobedience. So as, as, as easy as I can say this, when we talk about obedience, here's what we mean. Obedience is saying no to self and yes to God. Obedience is saying no to self and yes to God. So Jesus's platform is say yes to me. I know what's best for you. It might not look like it's best, but it's best. Say yes to me over and over and over again. I'm going to provide you opportunities to say yes to me. When they hit you on one cheek, say yes to me and turn the other cheek. When they steal your coat, say yes to me and give them another. When they don't pay back what you owe, say yes to me and and, and let that go because you will have a reward in heaven. All of these places are Jesus saying, say yes to me. And you might ask, why is Jesus so aggressively demanding our obedience? Why is he demanding our obedience? Well, I think the answer is pretty simple. He is, he's demanding our obedience because Jesus knows there is another kingdom that's also demanding your obedience. And he wants to make crystal clear that he knows that kingdom exists and he has come to rescue you out of it. There are two kingdoms and Jesus has entered into this sinful world and he says this world is demanding your obedience. It is asking you to say yes every single day to things that look nothing like me and so I'm gonna be really clear with you and tell you, you should come out of that and operate in the obedience I offer you and he uses aggressive language. In verse 24 through 26, he says, woe to you. Some translations say, cursed are you. I pick like the nicest translation possible. But these are pretty aggressive words. In verse 24, it says, Woe to you who are rich. Cursed are you who are rich, for you have your only happiness now. Cursed are you who are prosperous now, for a time of hunger is coming for you. Cursed are you who are laughing now, for mourning is coming. Cursed are you who are praised by the crowd, for your ancestors also praised the false prophets. Jesus is so aggressive when he clarifies what the other kingdom looks like. And he looks at the other kingdom And he says, the other kingdom is inviting you to believe in some false foundations, some false foundations. And he says, I am the only true and right and good foundations. But the kingdom you're in is asking you to say yes to some false foundations. And here are the four things. They're pretty pretty simple. He lays out Uh, the four false foundations. Number one is power. That's that's the rich piece. Number two is comfort. That's the well-fed and prosperous piece. Number three is success. This is laughing at others, gloating over others. This is actually election terminology going, I have won and you have lost. And lastly, it's recognition, acclaim and popularity. Jesus says, woe to all of these things. Now you might be, if we're honest, you might be asking yourself, those actually don't sound that bad, Josh. Like what's the problem with comfort? Like God invented hot tubs, didn't he? Like those are awesome and comfortable. Is God really against hot tubs? Didn't you name your church in a hot tub? Yeah, we did. And it was awesome. Okay, but that's not what we're talking about. So it's not so much about, are these things bad? It's, it's just kind of asking the question, are these things controlling you? Are these things what you are seeking above all else? Because here's what Jesus is clarifying. Those four things, power, success, recognition, and comfort, are unbelievably self-centered and now-centered. Self-centered and now-centered. And Jesus comes and says, I want to offer you a life that is me-centered and eternity-centered. 
Those four things are me, like me-centered as in selfishness and, and now-centered. And Jesus comes and says, I want you to have a Christ-centered life that is eternity-focused and oriented. And these things are fine. Listen, this, this is the hard part. Um, if now is all there is to life, then you should pursue comfort, success, recognition, and praise. If this world is all there is. But if there's another world... And this world we live in is so small and so short and eternity is so long and so beautiful, then we should seriously consider uh, how we spend our life and how we spend our values. So Jesus comes along and goes, my kingdom isn't a kingdom of power. It's a kingdom of weakness. And then he goes further. My kingdom isn't a kingdom of comfort. It's a kingdom that is marked by sacrifice. And you go, wow, weakness and sacrifice. That's great, Jesus. I would like to avoid both of those things every day. Do you have anything else on your list? He goes, yes, I do. Thanks for asking. This kingdom is a kingdom of success. Jesus says, my kingdom is a kingdom that is willing to grieve, a kingdom that's willing to lose, a kingdom that's willing to hurt and suffer. Lastly, the kingdom of this world is a world of recognition. And Jesus says, my kingdom is a kingdom of exclusion of being left out, of being persecuted, and of being hurt. And so you go, what what is the point of all this? Why is he clarifying those things? He's clarifying those for this reason. The mark of what makes you a Christian is a reversal of values to where you prize what the world pities. The mark of what makes us Christians is a remarkable reversal of values where you start to prize what the rest of the world calls pitiful and calls shameful and runs away from. And you start to see those things and you start to be okay with those things. And so you find yourself uh, every day of your life, probably a hundred times a day, you could ask yourself, what kingdom is controlling you right now? Is it the kingdom of now that's self-centered or is it a Christ-centered kingdom that has eternity in mind? Because if you were just to run through some scenarios, you, you have this great job, right? And all of a sudden, someone asks you at your job, hey, you have to lie about this thing, and you have to lie about these numbers, and, and we're going to put in some false reports. And you go, hey, I don't want to do that. And they go, well, if you don't do this, you're going to lose your job. And in this moment, you have to ask yourself a question, what kingdom controls you? Because if you're controlled by power and success and comfort and you like the job and you like the people at that job, then all of a sudden you're going to be willing to morally make sinful choices because you are primarily being controlled by this world's standards. But if you say, I'm actually operating in a different set of standards with eternity in mind, then I'm not going to be controlled by that. Because what Jesus is teaching is that his disciples are no longer controlled by the things this world thinks are so critical. If I were to speak to college students as clearly as possible and just say, there are things that this world thinks are so critical. And Jesus is saying the mark of Christianity is not being controlled by those things. The mark of Christianity is saying yes to me and no to those things. If someone asks you to cheat on something or they won't be your friend anymore and you go, man, I don't want to do that. I'm uncomfortable with that. And they go, well, then I'm not going to be your friend. You go, that's okay with me because I'm not controlled by recognition. I have a God that I find my identity in Christ and I'm controlled by another thing. Or if someone says, hey, you can be successful, but it's gonna have, you're going to have to hurt all these other people and kind of step on them on your way to the top. And you go, that might make sense if I was being controlled by a kingdom of power, but I'm not controlled by that kingdom. I'm controlled by a kingdom of, of weakness that's okay with this uh, not going my way if that's, if that's what it has to be. Or you say, man, what, 
What about how I should treat my enemies? What about how uh, I should treat people who are suffering? You go, well, if you're, if you're controlled by this kingdom, then you're going to want to fight back against your enemies and you're going to want to let people suffer when they've wronged you. But if you're controlled by Christ's kingdom, then you're going to love your enemies and pray for them and be okay when things don't go your way. But that's the crossroads you and I face every single day of what kingdom controls you. And every time you say no to God, you go towards the, world of the kingdom of this world. And every time you say yes to God, you go towards the kingdom that Christ offers. And the key to all of this and the secret to all of this, I think what you and I most want, we most want to be spiritually transformed. Like I know that all of us in this room are like held captive by some stuff and we really wish that we could get out of it. But, but when I lay out those scenarios, maybe you don't feel the weight of that. But listen, the, the, the truth is the secret to your spiritual transformation which is what you most want. You most want to be free from some stuff. The secret to your spiritual transformation is obedience. That's what you most want. The way you get out of some stuff is obedience. It's not more learning. So some of you in the room are like, hey, man, I have a giving problem. I haven't given to the church. I haven't given to God. So you know what? I got Dave Ramsey tapes, and I got a couple books on giving, and I'm going to learn a lot about giving. And it would be fair for someone to ask you, hey, why don't you just give? And you're like, oh, that's later. I'm learning about giving right now. Leave me alone, man. Let me get through my tapes first. You even have tapes? Why did I say tapes? Sorry. Let me get through my MP3s or, or whatever, the cloud, or whatever. Let me get through all this first. Some of you have terrible dating relationships. Like you've gone way too far sexually with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. You're like, okay, I got it. We're going to buy a book and we're going to read this book together. It's called The Meaning of Marriage. We're going to read it 14 times over the next month. And that's going to save us from going too far sexually. And you go, actually, that book's pretty long. I have a really short message for you. Just obey God. Obey. You don't need a book on the subject. That book has like thousands of words. I have two words for you. Obey God. Try that. You're like, whoa, Josh, that's rude. No, it's not. That book's not going to get you there. Listen, I have more books than most everyone in this room. If it was a competition, which it's not, but if it was, I would win. Okay? <laughs> I would at least be top five. And what I'm saying is these things aren't going to get you to where you want to go oftentimes. Like, I even went to college and studied the Bible in college. You think failing a math test is shameful? Try failing a New Testament test. That is shame-giving. You're like, sorry, God, sorry, family, sorry, mom, sorry, teacher, sorry, Apostle Paul. Like, it's like, <laughs> it's bad. You're like, the book of Romans is hard, dude. It's hard. But listen, all of that is not going to help you transform. What's going to help you transform is saying yes to God over and over and over and over. I'm not against books. I'm not against podcasts. I'm not against sermons. But if you know what John Piper has to say about something, but you haven't obeyed that something, you're radically misunderstanding Christianity. If you know what some theologian has to say or what some book has to say, but in your heart you have no desire to stop doing the sinful activity, you're radically misunderstanding what Jesus is offering to us. Knowledge is not the end game. Obedience is the end game. You could not learn another thing about God from now until you die, and you still wouldn't obey everything you know. That's how much knowledge has been put into us. Now, I'm not saying knowledge is bad. I love it. I have the spiritual gift of knowledge. Isn't that awesome? That means like when I learn stuff, I connect with God. And I'm constantly having to remind myself learning isn't the point. Obeying is the point. The secret to spiritual transformation is obedience. And the secret to standing out in your fraternity or in your, uh, or in your sports team or in your dorm, the secret to standing out in this culture is obedience. 
It's looking different than the world and saying yes to God over and over and over again. And the more you can do that, the more you will be transformed. Where you are to where you want to be is just a series of saying yes to God. But you have to ask yourself the question, do you think saying yes to God is better? Do you? Or do you think being trapped in a trampoline beating up your little sister is more fun than saying, yeah, you know what? I don't want to do that anymore. I want to say yes to God. I want to obey God. Even when it's hard, God, I want to trust you and I want to obey you. But you have to believe it's better. You have to believe that this is a good foundation and you have to believe eternity is on the line. And more than that, you even have to believe that this world's purpose, the purpose you have in this world is on the line. What's been interesting over the last week is I was studying Luke chapter six, and this is kind of ironic, but I'm also spending some time trying to develop a four-week like theology class for us where we can learn some stuff about missional theology. I think it's important for our church to learn that God wants us not to just gather together in a room and learn some stuff, but to actually take this into the world and live our lives to such a degree that it makes a difference. And we have world impact kind of difference makers in our church. And so I'm developing this content. And I want to see us be a part of a church that has movement across the Northwest and has movement in the world where we get to see God do incredible things in our midst. And so I'm studying Luke 6 and I'm studying this missional theology stuff. And I found this book um, called Church Planting Movements. And it was written by a guy named David Garrison. And he's having a conversation with a guy named Jerry Trousdale who wrote a book called Miraculous Movements. So Miraculous Movements book guy is talking to Church Planting Movements book guy and they're talking about movements. And I start reading uh, this dialogue they have together. And it says this, David Garrison is the author of Church Planting Movements. And this is uh, Jerry talking. Uh, David and I were together comparing notes because we were going to write a book together called The Wind, A Wind in the House of Islam. As we were comparing our data, we realized that from Indonesia to Africa and all over the world, the same thing was happening. And then David said, you know, Jerry, since I wrote Church Planting Movements, people often ask me to come and to see the movement that is happening where they are. And oftentimes I go and I discover that it's not really a movement because it's not really multiplying that rapidly. It's more like church growth on steroids. It's good, but it's not a movement. So you, you, you tracking with me? People say, hey, we're a part of a movement. Gary, come check it out. Gary shows up and looks around. He's like, hey, this is great. This is like church planting on steroids. You know what steroids are? Better, faster, stronger, but illegal. You tracking? Not cool. Don't do it. Say yes to God. Okay, good. Uh, faster recovery, but not worth it. Good. So he's like, church planting on steroids is one thing, but a church planting movement is another. And that's what Gary says. And this is the most important part. And, and then Gary goes on to say this. He says, you know what is the one thing that makes all the difference? The one thing that makes the difference between a church planting movement and church planting on steroids, the one difference is obedience. When you have obedience-based discipleship DNA, you have a chance to see a movement of God. But when you don't have it, then you can, you can have a movement of God, but maybe you'll get a church planting on steroids. But the only way you get multiplication is through dramatic transformation in the life of obedient disciples. The only way you get a movement of God is through dramatic life transformation in the life of obedient disciples. And then it starts to get really clear when you look at the Great Commission and Jesus says, I'm sending you out to teach the disciples to obey because if they obey, the movement continues. 
If they'll just say yes to me over and over and over again, the movement will continue. But if they are more preoccupied with power, comfort, success, and recognition, this thing is going to come to a halt. So I'm looking for disciples who primarily are, are measured by their obedience, not measured by their knowledge. Because if Jesus could just get 11 guys who are measured by obedience and he could turn the world upside down. But the key to all of this is a DNA of obedience. Or we could change the conversation in our church to what did you obey today? What are you repenting of today? What is God asking you to do today? Are you saying yes to God or are you saying yes to this other kingdom? And we just constantly ask ourselves that. That's how we see the world changed because that's Jesus's design for movement. Obedience-based disciples who aren't held down by the things of the world but are freed up to be crazy and live crazy lives and go on hashtag adventures, real ones. Not just the farmer's market, like real adventures where you could like really suffer and really go out and change the world. The only way you're going to get there is through obedience and saying yes to God. So as a church, we have to reject the false foundations of power, comfort, success, and recognition. Reject them. And we have to receive Jesus as our foundation, giving us the power to say no to self and yes to God. And we have to constantly ask ourselves the question, where am I saying no to God? Where am I gaining knowledge but lacking obedience? Where am I growing in information but lacking transformation? Where am I saying no to God? And how do I transition that to say yes to God? One of the commentaries on Luke chapter 6, uh, he, it just says, see Daniel chapter 5. And so it's cross-referencing Daniel chapter 5. And I'm like, that's kind of interesting. So I go to Daniel chapter 5. And Daniel 5 tells a story about a king named Belshazzar who's throwing this incredible crazy party. Who's like top of the world, operating with power, success, comfort, recognition, just dominating. Huge party. Celebrating the fact that they've overrun God's people. Celebrating all this stuff. And it's just darkness. And he's throwing this huge debauchery-filled party. And there's some handwriting that shows up on the wall. You ever heard the phrase writing on the wall? This is from Daniel chapter five. There's handwriting that shows up on the wall. And Belshazzar freaks out and he's like, gets really scared and gets really nervous. He's like, who wrote that on the wall? Can anyone read what's on the wall? And they can't find anybody that can read it. Finally, they go get Daniel. Daniel's been gifted by God to read what's on the wall. And on the wall, there's three phrases. The first phrase is your days are numbered. The second phrase, you will be weighed and measured and found wanting. The third phrase, tonight your life will be asked of you. In the middle of this crazy party with everything going well, comfort, success, recognition, all of this stuff, a hand writes on the wall, your days are numbered. And there will come a day when you will stand before me and trust me, you will not be found having what it takes. You will be found wanting. You will be found lacking. And that might actually be tonight. And in the story, Belshazzar actually dies that night in the story. And Daniel chapter 5 is what this one commentator was saying Jesus is doing in Luke chapter 6. He says what Jesus is doing in Luke chapter 6 is looking at everybody there and going, guys, the writing is on the walls. Woe to you who party like this. Woe to you who operate with comfort, success, recognition. And, and as this is your primary controlling force in life, woe to you. The writing is on the walls. This world is not all there is. This party life is not all there is. I know you feel like it's okay for now, but there should be some urgency in your obedience. Cursed are you. Woe to you who are building your lives on false foundations. I am the 
only foundation that is worth operating on. And Jesus loves us enough to come to us and say, be careful. Get out of that life. Say yes to God over and over and over and over again. Say yes to God. And the way you say yes to God is not by trying harder, but by going to Jesus and saying, would you help me in this? Because Jesus is the only one who had all power in the world and yet humbled himself in our place. He's the only one who had all comfort in the world in heaven and yet left heaven and joined our world in discomfort and sacrifice. Jesus is the only one worthy of all recognition, yet he laid that down so that we might be recognized before God. Jesus is the only one who is the most successful Christian in human history, who never sinned one time, was obedient even unto death and death on the cross, and he did all of that so that you and I might have the power to walk in obedience, not on your own. If you leave today and think this sermon was encouraging you to try harder, you've missed it. Trying harder is what got you into this mess in the first place. Going to God and saying, God, Jesus was our perfect sacrifice. Would you help me in this place? Would you help me? Listening and obeying is hard, but would you help me say yes to you? Because listen, there is a cost to saying yes to God, but there is a greater cost of not saying yes to God. And the writing's on the wall. And Jesus loves us enough to say, don't get caught up in this worldly kingdom. Its days are numbered. Come to me. Let me reverse your values. Come to me. Let me give you a new heart. Come to me. Let me put you on a mission that would actually be the most fulfilling thing in the whole world. Come to me. Let me give you an identity that supersedes all of those identities. Come to me and find the thing you're most looking for. And the way you get there is through obedience. So where are you saying no to God? And would you be bold enough today to go to him and say, God, would you help me say yes to you? over and over and over. That is the Christian life. Saying yes to God over and over and over and over. That's how we become more like Christ. And I want to pray that we could do that even in this moment, to say yes to God. So if you guys would, would you take a moment and just bow your head and close your eyes? And right where you are, I know, I know this is always hard because, you know, you're, you're thinking about lots of things. There's distractions like crazy, but, but we're all here and, and, and it's worthwhile for us just to ask the question. Honestly, ask yourself this question. Where are you saying no to God? Whatever that thing is, whatever just came to your mind, whatever, whatever that place is where you're saying no to God. Now ask yourself this question. What is the false foundation that you're building on in that place? Is it the false foundation of comfort? Is it the false foundation of power or recognition or success or people approval or fear? Whatever it is, would you just try to identify that false foundation? And then would you be honest enough to say, God, I repent of this. Repent means to turn. It means to believe new truth. It means to leave the old way and walk towards Christ. So would you be bold enough today to to say, God, this is the place I'm saying no to you. This is the place where uh, I have built my life on a false foundation. 
And God, I want to say yes to you. I want to be transformed by you. And if you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus and you've never said yes to him in the first place, then this is a great time to do that. So Father, tonight as we worship you, I pray that that we would be set free from some things tonight. And we wouldn't be set free because we have some new knowledge about something, God, but we'd be set free because we were bold enough to obey tonight. And God, I pray that, that even in the middle of all these woes and cursed and really aggressive language, that we would see the beauty of obedience, the joy of obedience, the freedom of obedience. God, I pray that Resonate Church would not be filled with people who begrudgingly obey you, but we'd be filled with people who love to obey, who joyfully obey, who find it our great honor to obey. Because you're good and you're eternal and you know what's best for us. So God, save us from from obedience with an attitude or obedience with uh, an excuse or obedience with frustration. God, save us from that and just give us the joy of obedience because it's better. And God, let us be bold enough to quit saying no to you and to start saying yes. May we do that tonight. Thank you for listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. If you are a college student in the Northwest or if you simply want to see college students come to know Jesus, please connect with us by visiting resonate.net.